0: to my mommy's
1: podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Genexa, the first ever organic and non-GMO medicines ever available. I love this whole line of medicines. It was created by two dads who are on a mission to find healthier medicines for their kids. When they couldn't, they created their own using their patented system that doesn't use artificial sweeteners, dyes, or preservatives. A favorite at our house right now is their Leg Cramp RX Homeopathic. That is the perfect remedy for late night growing pains or soreness from my kids running 10 plus miles as they usually do in our neighborhood each day. It's great for ages three plus and I wish I'd had it when I was pregnant and used to get leg cramps. You can shop this and their full line of organic and non-GMO medicines for everything from sleep to colds and everything in between by going to Genexa.com forward slash wellness Mama, and using the code wellness to get 20% off of your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A.com forward slash wellness Mama with the code wellness in all capital letters for 20% off of your order. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market. I have been using Thrive Market for years, ever since they first opened, and I know that many of you have as well, but I wanted to make sure that you're up to date on a couple of recent things that make them even more awesome. So first of all, if you haven't tried it, they have a really, really easy to use app that makes ordering online super simple. I use it all the time. Uh, You can download it at the link, I'll tell you in a minute, and use it to keep your, your online grocery list and to order whenever you need orders. Secondly. If you haven't noticed, they have a bunch of secret free gifts that are for members only. and This means that if anytime you make a purchase, if there's a free gift going, you get an extra free gift in your order. I often check back a few times a week and they've had some of my favorite products as free gifts before. My strategy is I add everything to my cart in the app as I think of them or as we run out or as I make a shopping list. Then once I hit the threshold for free shipping and the free gift, I order when it's a gift that I would use. And last tip make sure to check out the thrive market brand when you're on their app or website because they have spent a lot of effort and time developing their own line of really high quality products at incredible prices so they have alternatives to a lot of expensive brands and they're really high quality they are now my go-to for pantry staples like grain-free flowers baking soda nuts etc and for proteins like sardines and tuna and canned goods and even for diapers but you can find out more about all of these things and get an extra discount if it's your first order by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash Katie. Again, that's thrivemarket.com forward slash Katie. Hello, and welcome to the wellness mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. And this episode is going to be all about Habits and how they can change your life. I am here with James Clear, who's the author and speaker focused on habits, decision making, and continuous improvement. He's kind of a big deal. He speaks to and educates Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, which is, of course, my favorite sport. And through his online course, the Habits Academy, he's taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers. And his newest work, a book, Atomic Habits, is helping thousands of people reshape and improve their lives. And I can't wait to jump in. So James, welcome and thanks for being here.
0: Oh, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you.
1: Well, I think to start, I would love if you could walk us through some of the reasons why habits are so important. I know that many of us have habits, both conscious and unconscious habits, but explain to us why they're so important.
0: Sure. Well, there's kind of two answers to this question. So the first is that habits just help you solve the problems that you face throughout life. So, As you go through life, you face a variety of situations. Some of them are large. Some of them are small. But take something you do each day, like tying your shoes, for example. When you put your shoe on and it's untied, in a sense, that's a problem. And your brain has to figure out how to solve that. And if you need to think carefully about it every single time, like imagine if you never got better at tying your shoes. So the very first time you did it, it took a lot of effort. And you've had to think carefully about how to make the loops and how to tie them into each other and so on. You're focusing your full attention and concentration on that. And if it was like that every time, you wouldn't be able to do very much during life. You you might still be able to survive and get through it, but you would just only be going from one problem to the next and you would be very limited. But because your brain has this ability to develop greater fluency and accuracy and skill as you practice things to more or less do them quicker and better and almost on autopilot to build habits, that is you have the ability to solve problems or to come up with solutions uh, without having to focus your conscious attention and energy on them. And so now you can tie your shoe while holding a conversation or thinking about your to-do list for the day and so on. And that's kind of the purpose of habits is that they allow you to apply solutions to repeated or recurring problems that you face. And whenever the context is the same, like looking at a shoe untied on your foot, You can kind of pull out that script, that cognitive mental shortcut, and apply that, and you can do it without thinking. And so that's kind of the first purpose of habits, and the first reason that they're important. The second reason that they're important is less about the immediate impact, like tying your shoe or unplugging the toaster after each use or something like that, and more about the delayed or long term impact that they have. And so this is where I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self improvement. And the, the reason I use that phrase is that the same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. So, you know, early on, if you're saving for retirement, you don't really see a whole lot. You're kind of socking money away, but the curve is basically flat. You kind of feel like you're stuck on this plateau. Um, it's only 10 or 20 or 30 years later that you kind of get to this hockey stick portion of the curve where, you know, your accumulation savings goes up significantly. And this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed and habits are not exactly like that. But the process of building habits is very similar to that in the sense that the difference between making a choice that's 1% better or 1% worse, slightly good versus slightly bad on any given day is pretty insignificant. Like the difference between studying Spanish for an hour today or not studying at all is basically nothing, you know, like you haven't learned the language either way. And the difference between eating a burger and fries for lunch or eating a salad, again, is basically nothing. Your body looks basically the same in the mirror at the end of the night. The scale hasn't really changed. But if you repeat those habits for two or five or 10 years, then you get to very different results. And so habits are crucial because you can make these choices that are 1% better, 1% worse but you end up in a very different place in the long run. And so in a sense, time magnifies whatever you feed it. If you feed it good habits and get 1% better each day, then time becomes your ally. And if you feed it bad habits and get 1% worse each day, then time becomes your enemy. And one of the purposes of writing Atomic Habits and kind of what I hope to achieve with the book was to give people a framework and a simple system that they could use So that you can make sure your habits are compounding for you rather than against you
1: Yeah, I love that and I want to go deeper on that because I feel like for a lot of us at least speaking for myself We have a lot of habits that we've probably never really evaluated whether they're good bad or completely indifferent. So Take us through that system a little bit. How do you get people to work through? Are habits beneficial? Are they not and how to even identify those?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, from a high level, all habits serve you in some way, even the bad ones, they provide something for you. But a good way to distinguish between what is a good habit or a bad habit, what is a productive habit or an unproductive habit is by the ultimate outcome that it provides and not the immediate way that it serves you. So for example, you can think of pretty much every behavior is producing multiple outcomes across time. Like the The immediate outcome of eating a cookie, for example, is pretty favorable. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, you enjoy it. But the ultimate outcome, if you repeat that habit for weeks or months or years, um, might be unfavorable or unhealthy. For good habits, in many cases, it's the reverse. Like The immediate outcome of going to the gym is that it requires some effort, energy, a little bit of sacrifice, you sweat, you have to work hard. But the ultimate outcome, if you repeat that for weeks or months or years, is favorable. And so a lot of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about figuring out how to take those long-term consequences of your bad habits and pull those into the present moment so you feel a little bit of the pain right now. And the long-term rewards or benefits of your good habits and pull those into the present moment so it feels good right now and you have a reason to repeat it. So that's just about the distinguishing between like, what is a good habit? What is a bad habit? What do we even mean when we say that? Now, as you mentioned, many people are not aware of their habits to start with. Like we're, this is kind of a hallmark of habits. You know, once a habit is formed, you can do it more or less without thinking. And because you can do something or apply a solution on autopilot, you aren't even really aware of it half the time. And this is why I recommend using what I call the habit scorecard, just kind of as a first step or a simple like way to start to get a handle on what your habits are and whether they're benefiting you or not. So habit scorecard is pretty simple. Uh, You start at the beginning of your day and just write down in as much granularity and detail as you can, each behavior that you perform. And then uh, you assign a plus sign to it if it's a positive habit and minus sign if it's negative or just an equal sign if you think it's like fairly neutral. So for example, you might say, I wake up, uh, I turn off my alarm, I check my phone, I get out of bed, I make the bed, I go to the bathroom, take a shower, get on the scale, brush my teeth, get dressed, so on. And you go like all the way through your day as detailed as you can. And once you have that list, you kind of are suddenly aware of all these things that you're doing that often you just don't even think about. And then if you look at that list and you say, okay, you know, I wake up, that's fine. That's positive or neutral. Um, I turn off my alarm. That's fine. Uh, I check Instagram. Should I be checking Instagram before I get out of bed? Well, probably not. Like that might be a, a negative habit. Then you get out, you make your bed, that's positive and so on. You go through your day. And The point of this exercise is not really to change anything right away. It's not to judge yourself for your faults or to like praise yourself for your good habits. It's really just to get a handle on where you actually are to become aware of what's actually going on on a day-to-day basis. And once you've done that, you know, this is a fairly simple exercise. You can certainly do it in a half hour or less, uh, maybe even 10 minutes or less, depending on how detailed you want to get. But those 10 minutes are pretty well spent because now suddenly you have like an honest conversation with yourself about what am I doing each day? And are those things benefiting me? And then once you know that you have a lot of choices on where to go and how to shape and improve your habits.
1: That makes sense. And I want to call out an elephant in the room and have you address it early on because there is this perception that you can never truly break a bad habit or um, that that's a very difficult thing to do. And then there's a million theories of how long that takes and uh, if it's even, you know, long term possible. So let's go through that a little bit right now. Is it possible actually to break a bad habit?
0: Well, so the short answer is yes, uh, it's not easy uh, and different strategies have different levels of effectiveness. So first of all, and this is, uh, this is kind of a side note, I don't want to get trapped on this path too much, but there's a variety of interesting research uh, that's happening in the medical community right now that's actually like rewiring the brain so that bad habits are kind of like actually eliminated on a neurological level. So some of those are uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical drugs that are being used typically with drug addicts um, that can help reverse some of the cravings that people have. And then other ones are uh, what's called uh, TMS, which is like a magnetic resonance machine where you you basically put this magnet over the patient's brain and um, effectively turn on the neurons that are in like decision making uh, portions of the brain that are responsible for resisting temptation. And uh, suddenly many people who have had uh, depression or addiction or a variety of bad habits feel like this flip has been switched and uh, or this uh, switch has been flipped and uh, and they're able to turn their their bad habits off. So that's very early stages. It's definitely not a magical like panacea, uh, but it'll be interesting to see where that goes over the next 10 years. Now for the rest of us, whether you're uh, for most people who are just dealing with a, a bad habit, there are a variety of ways to think about this and to resolve it. So I like to break habits into four stages, Uh cue, which is like the trigger that prompts you to do the behavior, the craving, which is the prediction that comes afterward. So the craving is usually what we think about when we think about bad habits, like I'm craving a donut or I crave a cigarette or so on. But all behaviors actually are preceded by some kind of craving or prediction. Then there's the response, which is the actual behavior itself. Uh, And then finally, there's the reward or the benefit that you get for performing the behavior. And when it comes to breaking a bad habit, I think the most effective places to focus are the first stage and the third stage. So the first stage is the cue. So you want to reduce exposure to the cues that prompt your bad habits. So for example... If you're trying to lose weight and stick to a diet, then don't follow a bunch of like you know unhealthy food blogs on instagram um you're being triggered to you know to eat sweets all the time. If you want to spend less money on uh, electronics, then don't follow youtubers who do like unboxing videos or the latest tech review blog same thing you're kind of being prompted to do the thing you're trying to resist. The common example is like don't keep sweets in the house or if you uh, feel like you watch too much television or spend too much time on Netflix, then just look at the like, living room. Where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. And so you could put your television inside like a wall unit or a cabinet and you know, have it behind doors so you're less likely to see it. But the point of all those examples is to reduce exposure to the cue that prompts a bad habit. Then the second option that you have is to increase the friction associated with the habits. This is that third step about the the response. And the more difficult it becomes, the more friction there is associated with the behavior, the more likely you are to avoid it. So, for example, uh, if you are smoking and there's a pack of cigarettes on the table and you're trying to quit, well, that's going to be really hard because it's very low friction. The cigarette's right there. Whereas if you're in a cabin and there are no cigarettes around and the closest one is 30 miles away at a gas station like that, there's a lot of friction there and it might be easier to sit with that craving and let it pass. So those two options, uh, increasing friction and reducing exposure are two of the most effective ways to break a bad habit.
1: That makes perfect sense. And it's a good segue. You touched on it a little bit, but lead into my next question, which is just how important is our environment when it comes to habits? Because that almost goes back to even the age old question with kids of nature versus nurture and how much is built in and how much is dictated by our environment. But from an adult perspective, when we're trying to change our habits, how much does the environment really come into play?
0: Mm, Yeah, it's a huge factor. So I like to divide the environment into two sections. Uh, So the first is the physical environment. So like the things that are on your kitchen counter at home or in your living room or on your desk at work and the social environment. So the people that surround you and the, the people you hang out with. And I'll talk about the physical environment first. And if you'd like to talk more about social, we can come back to that. But Uh, I gave the example of uh, like a living room and, you know, all the couches and chairs facing the television. So that physical environment is shaping the habit of watching TV. Now, this can work for you as well as against you. So for example, when I wanted to build the habit of flossing, I realized that I brushed my teeth twice a day, but I wasn't flossing consistently. And when I looked at that habit and tried to figure out what the issue was, I realized one of the problems is that the floss was hidden away in a drawer in the bathroom and I just wouldn't see it. And so I bought a little bowl and I put it right next to my toothbrush and then I put the floss in the bowl. And now whenever I brush my teeth, I put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up, floss right away. Now I do it twice a day. I don't even think about it. Um, and I basically, the only thing I needed to do to build that habit was to change the environment so that the cue of my good habit was more obvious. It was right there. Um, same thing when I wanted to uh eat more fruit. We used to buy apples and put them in the crisper in the bottom of the fridge, and they would be tucked down there and I would forget they were in there and they would go bad after like two weeks, and then uh I would have to throw them away and be annoyed, wasting food and wasting money and so on. So again, I just bought like a display bowl and put them right in the middle of the counter and then have the apples there, and now I'll eat them in two days or three days and they're, you know, gone right away. And that again was just that habit was mostly just a change in what was obvious or available, what was visible in the environment. And um, so this is one of the key ways that physical environment can shape your habits is by making it obvious uh, what to do and where to do it. The The second thing that I'll add to this, that can be an important caveat for building good habits is your current habits over time they become tied to a particular context and so for example uh for one person coming into the context of their living room and their couch the couch might be the place where they sit down and read for an hour each night for another person the couch might be a place where they sit down and watch their favorite tv show and eat a bowl of ice cream and the habits become tied to that context overall And so if you try to insert a new behavior into the same context, for example, if you try to say, all right, you know, I've been watching too much TV and eating ice cream. So instead, I'm going to um, I'm going to try to journal for 20 minutes each night and I'll do that on my couch. Well, you go in there and you sit down and there's kind of this like subtle non-conscious pull back toward the habit that's associated with that context. You know, you find yourself turning on the TV, even though you're you're like, man, I really wanted to journal. I, I was hoping I would be able to do that habit instead. And what happens is that you're basically trying to overcome your associations with that context And for this reason, it's often easier to start a new habit in a new environment, one that you don't have uh, current um, associations built in already. So if you want to start that journaling habit of journaling for 20 minutes, it might be more effective to say, pick a coffee shop that is outside your office that you don't usually go to. And so you finish work, you go into the coffee shop, And your new routine becomes as soon as I walk in the door, I turn off my phone and then I sit down at a table and I journal for 20 minutes. And that pattern, that routine becomes the thing that happens there. This becomes like the journaling coffee shop. And, uh, you know, of course, if you can't do it with like a shop or something like that, or if you don't have an entirely different room where you can perform the new habit, you can still do it with like what I would call an activity zone, you know, like you could buy. Uh, you could buy a chair and put it in the corner and that chair becomes the journaling chair. And it's the only thing you do in that chair. But my point here, the overall point is that your environment one shapes your behavior by prompting you to do certain things. And two, over time, that context becomes associated with certain habits. And so it's often easier to build a new habit in a new context rather than trying to overpower the associations that you already have with your current context. And if you employ those two strategies, then you'll often find that your physical environment can kind of nudge you in the right direction.
1: That makes sense. And another thing I'd love for you to kind of put to rest is the the great debate on how long does it actually take to form a habit? Because I know I've read at least probably six different theories online of how long it truly takes to create a habit. So what's your take
0: on that? (laughs) Yeah. So this is one of the most common questions I get. Uh, You'll see all kinds of things, right? You see 21 days, 30 days, 66 days. There was one study that showed that on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. Even within that study, the range was quite wide. So something simple like drinking a glass of water at lunch each day would take, um, you know, a couple weeks. Something really complicated, like going for a run uh, after work every day might take seven or eight months. But the range was was very wide. Now, as a general rule, thinking, "Oh, this is going to take me a few months to build a habit," I, that's fine. I think you know, like you you should be not focused on, "Oh, let me just do this for 21 days and I'll be done." But there's kind of a larger problem with that question, which is the implicit assumption behind the question: How long does it take to build a habit? Is well, how long until I can stop working, or how long until it's easy, or how long until I don't have to try anymore? And the honest answer to that question is forever, because if you stop working on a habit, if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And so I think we need a shift from seeing this as like habits are not a life, uh, like a, a finish line to cross, habits are a lifestyle to be lived. And if you view it as a lifestyle, Then you start to see the reason to pick a 1% change or a small improvement, something you can actually stick with in the long run, because uh, you're really looking for something that's sustainable and that can be reliably done day in and day out for the rest of your life or for as long as you want to do it. So that's the first piece. The second answer to that question, though, is that there really isn't anything about time passing that makes a habit stick. What makes a habit stick is the number of times that you have done it. You know, like you could do 30 days could pass and you could do a habit once, a behavior once, or you could do it a thousand times. And, um, you know, think about the habit of pulling out your smartphone. How many days did it take you to build that habit? Probably not that many. I mean, we, the average adult pulls their smartphone out over 150 times a day. So if you're doing something that many times, if you're performing that many repetitions, then you often find that the habit sticks much faster. And uh, that, I think, is another lesson or another deeper insight about how habits work and what's important, which is that it's not really about the time. It's more about putting in your reps. And once you realize that, you can maybe release a little bit of the tension or a little bit of the worry about, oh, you know, like, have I done this for 30 days or something like that? And stop worrying about the time that has elapsed and start focusing more on the work that has been done and on how can I put my reps in today? Because if you put your reps in today and you show up tomorrow and you do the same, before you know it, you will have a habit that's been formed.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I'm curious in your work with all of these people over time, if there are patterns that have emerged or that you've seen for the most impactful habit and how to identify those, or does it really vary from person to person? And if so, how how can someone identify what their most impactful habit changes will be?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. So of course, as you would expect, it does differ between person to person, but I think there are still some lessons we can draw on the whole. So sometimes these habits that are like the highest value or the highest leverage are referred to as keystone habits. And um, one way to think about it is it's kind of like the one or two habits that pull the rest of your life in line. So for me personally, uh, weightlifting is a great example. You know, like I go to the gym and I work out and yes, I get the benefits of exercise, but it also does like all of these secondary things, you know, it'll, um, it improves my health. It helps me sleep better at night because I'm tired from the workout, which means I wake up the next day and I have better energy to, and focus. Uh, I get kind of this post-workout high for about an hour or two where I'm like very focused and uh, can pay attention well to whatever the next task is. I tend to eat better when I work out, which is interesting because like you could say, well, you worked out. Maybe you could just like let it slip a little bit, but it ends up making me think like, oh, I don't want to waste it. And so I, um, so I end up eating healthier. And at no point was I trying to build better sleep habits or nutrition habits or focus habits or energy habits, but all of those things kind of like came as a natural side effect of this one keystone habit of working out. Some other common keystone habits that you'll hear people talk about uh, for performers, whether it's athletes or comedians or musicians, uh, visualization is a common keystone habit that, you know, if they visualize how the performance is going to go then they find that they kind of get off on the right foot and things get started uh, better. Meditation is a common keystone habit that a lot of CEOs and executives will talk about. If they get their 10 minutes of meditation in, in the morning, then the rest of their day kind of seems to go more to plan or they can handle the problems better. For a lot of creatives like writers and so on, going for a daily walk is uh, often cited as a keystone habit where, you know, if they get outside and get moving a little bit, then the creative juices kind of get flowing or they clarify their ideas. I think there's also just something in general to like, if you're stuck on a project or a problem, then changing the context, you know? So like you're sitting in front of your computer for four hours and you don't seem to be making any progress, but then you step outside and go for a walk for 15 minutes and suddenly the answer comes to you. Um, so anyway, going for a, a walk is a, a common keystone habit. And then another one that you'll hear people mention a lot is paying off their debt or getting their budgeting and finances under control. Sometimes you'll see people pay debt off and then like all of a sudden they start going to the gym and stuff too. And I, it's, there's just kind of this like ripple effect um, in from one area of their life to the next. So those are a variety of common keystone habits that you'll see people talk about. I think for how to figure that out for yourself and determine like, what is the highest value uh, habit for me to focus on? You can simply ask yourself like, what, what do, what do I do when things go well? You know, what, when I have a day that feels effective, that feels like I'm at my best, what am I usually doing on that day? And you'll often be able to come up with like three or four things And all of those might not be the answer, but that gives you a short list to start with. And maybe you just pick one of those and try to focus on making that a habit and doing it each day and see what happens. And then if that doesn't seem to do the trick, uh, you know, the next month, you could pick a different one from that list and focus on that. But pretty soon, within maybe three or four months, you'll have a, a decent idea of like what the one or two levers are for you that, man, when I do this, things like really fall in line. And uh, I think that that's a good way to think about it. I've also, though, developed a list of some common habits that I feel like just have a very high rate of return in life. And so I'll just list those off real quick. So one of them is uh, sleeping for eight hours each day, lifting weights at least three times a week, or we could just say exercising three times a week, going for a walk each day, saving at least 10% of your income, reading every day. Drinking more of water and less of everything else, and then leaving your phone in another room while you work. And those like seven ideas, I don't think all of them work for everybody. But if you can do some of those, you'll find that they really do pay off in the years and decades that follow.
1: I love all of those. And to speak a little bit to the idea of the little habits making such a big difference. I've said this before so many times on the podcast, but I truly believe that women and moms are the busiest people on the planet, especially working moms, but any mom. Um, And so I feel like we especially can benefit from systems or anything that allows us to take some of that mental stress off. Because what I notice with moms, especially is There's so much on our mind at all times that we're constantly juggling. So even if we are handling everything, so often we feel stressed all the time. And in my own life, I can now say I'm not at all stressed most days, but it's because I've put systems in place and I've basically created good habits according to like the way you've taught it. I've created habits that have let me not have to worry about things when it's not their time to be worried about. And I know this was a long process for me. And so I'm wondering for those who are trying to implement these habits and trying to work through this, if you can give some tips on staying motivated, because that seems to be the friction point. Like it's easy to want to jump in and start to create new habits, but the motivation to stay, to stick with it until that habit is actually formed can be really tough. So do you have any insight or tips there?
0: Oh yeah, it's a great question. It it can be really hard. Um, So there are two ways to think about this. So the first is, uh, and I cover this in, I've got a whole section on it in atomic habits for the fourth, what I call the fourth law of behavior change, which is make it satisfying. And this is just from a biological standpoint, and then I'll break it down into practical action steps. So biologically speaking, your brain wants to repeat things that feel good, uh, that provide some type of satisfaction or enjoyment. So It's kind of like whenever the ending of a habit or a behavior or an experience is positive, it's like this little signal to your brain that says, Hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time. And the key aspect there is it's really about the speed with which you feel satisfied. So for example, uh, products are a great, uh, are kind of a great example of this, like, um, common one is toothpaste. There's there's no reason that toothpaste has to taste minty. It doesn't make the toothpaste like more effective at cleaning your teeth. It could just be a, a paste um, or something. But the mint flavor makes it more satisfying, more enjoyable for you to brush your teeth and use that. And because it provides this immediate satisfaction, you're more likely to show up and use it again. Um, more common example, a couple years ago, BMW. Uh, added this little feature to some of their cars where if you pressed on the accelerator, it would actually pump additional engine growl or engine noise into the speakers of the car. So it like sounded uh, more satisfying, like you were accelerating more, um, sounded more like a race car, I guess. And, uh, and so the point there, those examples are ways of making an experience more immediately satisfying. And because it's more immediately satisfying, you want to repeat it again. All right, so that's the, how the process works in your brain for getting a habit to stick, for getting you to remain consistent. So how do we translate that into daily actions or habits? Well, a lot of the time, the habits that we're looking to perform are what I would call kind of habits of avoidance, like don't drink alcohol for 30 days or don't spend money on Amazon or uh, go out to eat less and cook more meals at home. And the hard part about a lot of those habits is that when you're framing it in that way, you're only thinking about resisting something like not spending money or not going out to eat or not drinking. And it's inherently difficult for habits like that to feel satisfying because it feels like all you're doing is resisting temptation. So I think a more effective way to get habits to stick in the long run is to kind of flip that on its head and focus on a way to make it immediately satisfying in the moment. So for example, one of my readers, he and his wife wanted to eat out less and cook meals at home more. And so what they did was they opened up a savings account and they labeled it trip to Europe. And then whenever they didn't go out to eat at a restaurant and stayed home to cook dinner instead, they would transfer $50 over to that account. So they still didn't get the satisfaction of going out to eat right away but they were able to get the immediate satisfaction of seeing the savings account grow. And at the end of the year, they put the money toward their trip or whatever. And that's a good example of a way to add a little bit of immediate satisfaction to something that would otherwise feel like you're resisting. And again, when a behavior is immediately satisfying, you have a reason to repeat it again in the future. So so that's the first answer is try to find a way to make it immediately satisfying in the moment. And um, also I should just say, Oftentimes schools and teachers and kindergarten classrooms and so on will do this type of thing all the time, right? Like anytime the child does their like daily reading, they get like a reading star put on the chart or something like that. And that those rewards like that, whether they're stars on a chart or tokens or coins that go into an account or uh, seeing an actual savings account increase when you transfer the money over, those are all just ways of having like an immediate measurement. That provides a little bit of satisfaction in the moment. So that's one way to keep yourself motivated in the long run. And I have a bunch of other examples about that in the book. Um, the second thing, though, to consider is that as a habit becomes formed, as it gets built, we come to expect uh, the outcome. We, come to, we become used to it. It becomes normal. And when it's normal, we're more likely to get bored and less likely to stay engaged and stay focused on the task. And this is where you can implement what I call the Goldilocks rule. So the Goldilocks rule is this idea that humans experience peak levels of motivation. They stay stay motivated and stay sustained uh, on a habit when they are working on tasks of just manageable difficulty. So not too hard, not too easy, just right. That's the Goldilocks principle. Um, As an example, imagine that you're playing tennis and you're playing, if you play tennis against like a professional, uh, like Serena Williams or Roger Federer or somebody like that, it's going to get boring pretty quick because you're going to lose every point. On the other side, if you play tennis against like a three year old uh, it might be cute for a second, but if you're actually trying to like play a real match it's going to be boring really quick because you're going to win every point. But if you play against somebody who is your peer, who's your equal, you win a few points, they win a few points, you have a chance to win the match, but only if you really try, that's like the most motivating level because it's right on the edge of your ability and what you find with many habits is that people fall into one or two traps either. They start and they, they start doing the same thing and they never advance. So then it becomes so easy that they get bored with it and then they just give up and it just like fades away because it's boring or they advance too quickly. So like going to the gym is a classic example. You like go, you add maybe five pounds each time and then you turn around like eight weeks later and it's too hard and you're like, you feel frustrated because you're no longer making progress and so on. And, uh, they go up too quickly. And so then it gets boring because it feels like they're just failing every time. But what you want to do is try to live on that little razor's edge on that perimeter of your ability. And if you're able to do that, where you're winning, like at least 50% of the time, maybe even a little bit more than that, that's enough for you to stay motivated. And then you're still being challenged the other half of the time and you have to stay focused. So scientists have quantified this and they found that it's about four, maybe four to 5% uh, beyond your current ability. Now in daily life, it's really hard to know, you know, how am I meditating 4% harder than I was yesterday? Or am I writing 4% better than I was yesterday? Um, It's challenging to know that, but I think still is like a guiding principle or this idea of, okay, you know, I've been doing this habit for a little while. How do I advance just a, just a touch, right? Just a little bit more than what I was before so that I'm being challenged still and have a reason to stay engaged and stay focused. And um, I think if you can combine those two answers, the Goldilocks rule and staying on the perimeter of your ability and make it satisfying and finding ways to be uh, satisfied immediately from the habit, then you've got two powerful strategies for making a habit stick and making it last in the long run. Yeah,
1: that's super helpful. And I think the other side of that is, especially anyone who's tried to change a habit regarding food, but really anything, is that there seems to be a point at which a lot of people kind of fall off the wagon and have to get back on. So are there any particularly actionable tips for getting back on a habit if you've let it lapse?
0: Yeah. My favorite strategy for this is what I call never miss twice. So, you know, I've been guilty of this just like everybody else. All, all habit streaks come to an end at some point. You know, you like, start a diet and you do it for five days and then on the sixth day your friends want to go to happy hour or you binge eat a pizza or something and um usually we we have this for whatever reason we have this tendency where we kind of fall into this all or nothing mindset you know it's like and then the self the negative self-talk starts it's like oh see i knew i was going to screw it up i knew i wasn't meant to stick to this diet or i must not have it you know what it takes to be cut out for this or whatever and instead I like to remind myself just never miss twice. You know, I, I wish I hadn't binge Jade or I wish I hadn't, uh, you know, like skipped the meal and gone to that happy hour or whatever, but let me pour all my attention, energy and focus into making sure the next meal is a healthy one. Or for me, it often happens as a writer. I, I write, uh, for the first three years that I wrote on Jamesclear.com. I would write a new article every Monday and Thursday and, you know, if I missed on Monday, well, I wish that hadn't happened, but how do I pour all my attention into making sure I don't miss on Thursday, never miss twice. And I think if you can, uh, ap- uh, if you can employ that strategy, then you start to internalize something that's important uh, to realize in the long run, which is it's almost never the first mistake that ruins you. It's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. And if you can avoid that spiral, if you can get back on track as quick as possible, then you'll find that you start a new habit streak and in the long run, that error or that slip up was just a blip on the radar. It doesn't really even mean anything. But the the real key is embracing that idea of never miss twice and get back on track quickly.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's such a great tip. And because it tends, you're right, it tends to go the other way. People are like, oh, well, I already messed up. So I'm just gonna keep doing this until next Monday or until you know the first of the month or until some future point at which they're gonna get back on track, which only makes it then harder and harder and harder. This podcast is sponsored by Genexa, the first ever organic and non-GMO medicines ever available. I love this whole line of medicines. It was created by two dads who are on a mission to find healthier medicines for their kids. When they couldn't, they created their own using their patented system that doesn't use artificial sweeteners, dyes or preservatives. A favorite at our house right now is their Leg Cramp RX homeopathic. That is the perfect remedy for late night growing pains or soreness from my kids running 10 plus miles as they usually do in our neighborhood each day. It's great for ages three plus and I wish I'd had it when I was pregnant and used to get leg cramps. You can shop this and their full line of organic and non GMO medicines for everything from sleep to colds and everything in between by going to genexa.com Forward slash wellness Mama, and using the code wellness to get 20% off of your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A dot forward slash wellnessmama with the code wellness in all capital letters for 20% off of your order. This podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market. I have been using Thrive Market for years, ever since they first opened. And I know that many of you have as well but I wanted to make sure that you're up to date on a couple of recent things that make them even more awesome. So first of all, if you haven't tried it, they have a really, really easy to use app that makes ordering online super simple. I use it all the time. Uh, You can download it at the link, I'll tell you in a minute, and use it to keep your, your online grocery list and to order whenever you need orders. Secondly, if you haven't noticed, they have a bunch of secret free gifts that are for members only. And this means that if anytime you make a purchase, if there's a free gift going, you get an extra free gift in your order. I often check back a few times a week and they've had some of my favorite products as free gifts before. My strategy is I add everything to my cart in the app as I think of them or as we run out or as I make a shopping list. Then once I hit the threshold for free shipping and the free gift, I order when it's a gift that I would use. And last tip, make sure to check out the Thrive Market Brand when you're on their app or website because they have spent a lot of effort and time developing their own line of really high quality products at incredible prices. So they have alternatives to a lot of expensive brands and they're really high quality. They are now my go-to for pantry staples like grain-free flours, baking soda, nuts, etc., and for proteins like sardines and tuna and canned goods and even for diapers. But you can find out more about all of these things and get an extra discount if it's your first order by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash katie. Again, that's thrivemarket.com forward slash katie. Also, you brought up a good point in the book, and I'd love for you to go deeper on this about talent versus habits. And I would love if you could kind of elaborate on that. And how much is it really talent and genes versus our effort and our habit?
0: Yeah. So I haven't seen many people talk about this yet, but I think it's a really important area. And I'll also be interested to see how it advances over the next, uh, in the coming years and decades, because I think there's a lot for us to learn in this as well. But so a lot of the time people don't like to talk about uh, genes because they naturally think genes are fixed and you start to hear words like biological determinism or, oh, if it's all predetermined, then like, why try anyway? Why bother? But that's not actually, I think, the, the message that we should take away from this. So first of all, you, it's impossible. You cannot have genes that are outside of an environment. So the, you, the genes and the environment are always uh, co-interacting. And the usefulness of a particular set of genes is determined by the environment that it's in or by the challenges that it faces. So, for example, if you're seven feet tall, that's a very useful set of genes if you are on a basketball court and you want to dunk a basketball. But it's not very helpful at all if you're on a balance beam and you want to do like a cartwheel or gymnastics. And so in a sense, the set of genes of being seven feet tall, the usefulness of them is highly determined by what environment or context you're in. And this is like fairly obvious to us when we talk about physical characteristics, but it's also true of psychological ones and of like our personality, for example so uh, i cover this again in more detail in the book but the most robust measure of personality thus far is what's called the big five and it maps personality onto five different spectrums and so the most common one that most people are familiar with is one of the spectrums is introversion on one side and extroversion on the other and uh there are other ones like conscientiousness or agreeableness and so on but um where you fall on that spectrum has been linked to your genes. So there's some genetic underpinning for these personality traits and whatever set of personality traits that you have may influence which habits you find more attractive or interesting. Uh, For example, someone who is high in agreeableness is the kind of person that is warm and considerate and kind. And you might imagine if somebody has genes that predispose them to being warm and considerate and kind, then they might find, might find it easier to build a habit of like writing thank you notes, for example, or to build the habit of like getting friends together to hang out on the weekend or something like that. And uh, someone who's low in that particular category or spectrum might struggle with some of those habits. So in that sense, understanding yourself at a more genetic level might help you realize which habits you're primed for and which ones you might need more help with. But the second thing that it does is that it can help inform your strategy In other words, it can tell you where you might need to apply more effort or which strategy might be more useful for you based on what comes naturally and what doesn't. So for example, if someone is like low on conscientiousness, then they tend to be less orderly or less organized. Well, if you're the type of person who isn't very orderly and organized, then you're probably less likely to like just remember to do it or to make a to-do list or something like that. And you might benefit more from uh, some of the environment design strategies, which I talk about in chapter six and 12. And we talked a little bit more about it uh, during this conversation as well, because being in an environment that reminds you to do it uh, or being in an environment environment that uh, nudges you in the particular direction is helpful if you have that kind of personality where you're more prone to be spontaneous or chaotic or just kind of like doing stuff, um, you know, on a whim. And so having a structured environment could be more helpful for you because you're less likely to just remember to do it. So, um, there are a variety of ideas there and I haven't really been able to tease out all of them, but I think there's definitely some insight there in like understanding yourself and your personality and what genes, um, are predisposing you toward, but your genes don't predetermine what you uh what you can accomplish or what you're going to do they simply determine your areas of opportunity uh you know like which basically how high your ceiling is in a particular area now whether you capitalize on that is determined by how much work you put in and what you're um you know what you're spending your time on so the punchline of that section is that genes do not tell us not to work hard that it's just all predetermined and there's no reason to try Instead, they tell us where to work hard. They don't, they don't eliminate the need for strategy. They inform our strategy. And by understanding yourself at a deeper level, you can more accurately determine how to approach your habits and which ones to focus on.
1: I love that. That and I think another point that you make so well in the book um, is, like you mentioned in the beginning, the value of those little tiny changes that add up over time. Because I think the temptation can often be, especially around New Year's or any time, but the idea of I'm going to make these massive changes and I'm going to stick to them all at once and my whole life is going to be different. And you make a really compelling case for actually, you're more likely to make those changes if they're small and consistent versus these massive changes all at once. So can you speak to that? Like, give people kind of some insight there on how small can a change be and still be a very useful long-term habit?
0: Well, so I like to recommend people employ what I call the two-minute rule. And the two-minute rule is basically, it just says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to just the first two minutes. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out your yoga mat or go for a run uh, becomes put on your running shoes. And this sounds like kind of silly to people sometimes because they're like, well, you know, I know the real goal is to actually run each day. It's not to put on my running shoes. So like, why would I bother doing that? But if you feel that way, then I would encourage you to actually limit yourself to just the first two minutes. And I, I have a, my favorite story of this. I have a reader who ended up losing over a hundred pounds and the way that he did it, or one of the things that he did was He went to the gym each day, but he didn't allow himself to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would drive to the gym, get out, do like half an exercise, get back in his car, drive home. And it sounds silly to people at first, but what you realize uh, after you think about it a little bit more is that he was mastering the art of showing up. And this is a crucial, fundamental thing. That all habits have to go through for you to actually get to where you want to go for you to achieve this, whatever this big ambitious thing is that you ultimately want to get to. Um, The core lesson is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. If you don't master the art of showing up, then you don't actually have anything to optimize. And so by being the type of person who went to the gym for five minutes each day, he turned around six weeks later and was like, you know, I'm coming here all the time. I kind of feel like staying a little bit longer which of course is exactly the opposite of how most people people feel when they try to change their habits. They usually are something like they get super motivated. They do some really intense workout program. They go for 45 minutes to an hour. They're sweating like crazy. And they do this for eight days and then they burn out and then they turn around three months later and they're like, Oh, I need to get in shape. But by taking it from the complete opposite side of the spectrum, by mastering the art of showing up, by scaling it down to just the first two minutes or less, you can become the type of person who does that each day or who shows up each day. And once you're the type of person who shows up, then you have a lot of options for improving. And so I think that that's like a much more useful way to focus on making changes is how can I master the art of showing up and be the type of person who is there every day. And once I'm the type of person who's there, even if it's only for two minutes, then I can become the type of person who does it better.
1: I love that. I think that's such good context. And for someone listening, I definitely would recommend the book and that'll be linked in the show notes. I know it's available everywhere books are sold, but for someone who's listening and realizing some of these patterns in their own life and wanting to make changes in their habits, can you recommend a good starting point? I mean, obviously reading the book, but beyond that, um, where would you recommend they take that first baby step?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think we talked a little bit about keystone habits and figuring out like which area is uh, kind of the highest level one for you or the the area that might make the biggest difference in other areas of life kind of ripple out. So I think if I was going to recommend a way to start, I would say, first of all, just pick one habit. Secondly, uh, think a little bit about what those keystone habits might be like, what are the areas where things go well for you and they kind of ripple into others and just pick one of those. And then the third thing would be to utilize this idea of the two minute rule and scale it down to something really easy that you can show up with each day. And then once you have that, so say it's like, I've decided that actually it's the habit of reading and I'm just going to read one page. Um, Then you just try to do that and develop that kind of identity and do that for the first, say four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, become the type of person who shows up and does that every day. And once you reinforce that identity, then you can update and uh, expand and improve from there. Um, And this comes back to one of the central ideas that's in the book, which is you want to develop the identity that you're ultimately looking to achieve and not necessarily the result. Often we're so focused on the results, like, you know, I want to lose 30 pounds in the next six months, or I want to double my income, or I want to meditate for 20 minutes a day. And there's nothing wrong with those results, but the real thing that you're looking to do is to develop a new identity. You're, you know, the goal is not to like go to the gym. The goal is to become someone who works out each day. The goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to meditate for 20 minutes. The goal is to become a meditator. And so once you adopt that identity of I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, or I'm the type of person who meditates each day, even if it's only for 60 seconds, Then you're in a much more powerful place because, in a sense, true behavior change is identity change. You're not even really trying to pursue behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. And I think that the way to do that is uh, what I just recommended scale it down to just two minutes, focus on that keystone habit, master the art of showing up, do something easy, make a 1% change, but do it more consistently than you ever have.
1: I love that. I think that's incredibly profound. And I know a previous podcast guest, Jim Quick, made that point a little bit differently. But he said, you know, if we realized truly the power of our subconscious, we would never tell ourselves anything that we didn't want to be true. And I think you make a great point about how to do that in an active way, how to reframe your identity and to become that person versus just focusing on a goal that is external, actually shifting your internal focus. And I think that makes total sense of when we really would see profound changes or when we're able to shift our perception of ourselves and our the standards to which we hold ourselves and how we view ourselves. Um, so I love, I love that. I love that. I think that's such an amazing point that you just made.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think it's crucial for the, the process of long term change. Ultimately, what you're looking to do is reinforce your desired identity uh, to become the type of person you you want to be rather than to achieve any individual result.
1: Absolutely. And I can't believe we've already almost flown through our entire hour together, but a question that's a little bit unrelated that I love to ask somewhat selfishly at the end is if there is a book or book besides your own, obviously, that's really made a profound impact on your life. I'm an avid reader, so I'm always looking for new ideas.
0: Sure. So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you three, actually. Um, so the first one is uh, called Manual for Living by Epictetus. It's one of the Stoic philosophers and one of those ancient texts. Uh, it's pretty short. You can read it in like an hour. It's very accessible and easy to read. It's not going to be the type of things that you've never heard. Like it's, you know, things like uh, focus on what is within your control, not what is outside of your control. But there are lessons that have stood the test of time for 2,000 years, and we all need to be reminded of them every now and then. So it's a good way to spend an hour. So that's called Manual for Living by Epictetus. The second one is called The Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. And so they were a a husband-wife combo, and they were historians. And they spent like 60 years, their their entire career, writing this incredibly long compendium, this like encyclopedic 12-volume series of uh, everything that had happened throughout history, like all the major events. And uh, after they finished with this huge, massive project, they wrote a little 100-page book called The Lessons of History that talks about the overarching and recurring themes throughout history, kind of like the pieces of human nature that arise again and again and seem to be standard across time, even, you know, across centuries even. And so uh, as someone who's very interested in habits and human behavior, I think that's a cool little insight into uh, how we operate and uh, ideas that, that tend to last. And then the third and final one, I believe it's called Le- uh, Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son. And I think it was written in the early 1900s, maybe 1910s, 1920s. And uh, it's just a series of letters that this entrepreneur, this uh, father, wrote to his younger son uh, who was in college when they started and then like throughout the early years of his career. And um, they're just interesting lessons about business and some life lessons in there as well. And uh, you can tell that it's dated in some of the language and some of the uh, things that it says but uh, there are also a lot of like interesting insights in there as well. So uh, I think those three, uh, Manual for Living, Lessons of History, and Lessons from a Self-Made Merchant to a Son are all interesting books that a lot of people haven't checked out.
1: I love it. I'm adding all of those to my reading list now. And for anyone who wants to continue learning from you, of course, I recommend getting a book. But where else can they find you online and where can they jump in?
0: Yeah, thank you. So if you'd like to just check out more of my work, you can go to jamesclear.com click on articles. I have them organized by topic and category. So you can poke around a little bit and see what's, what interests you. Um, And then if you'd like to check out the book, it's called atomic habits An easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And you can find it at atomichabits.com. And also on that page, there are some bonus materials. So there's like a guide on how to apply the ideas to parenting, a guide on how to apply the ideas in the book to business, Uh, a habit tracker template for tracking your habits and a couple other things as well. Anyway, all of that is at atomichabits.com.
1: Awesome. And I'll make sure that links in the show notes as well. But James, thanks so much for your time today. I really did love your book and I'm so grateful you took time to be here with us today.
0: Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope you'll join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast.